you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And we'll be in verses 7 through 13 this morning. Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13. And he, being Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Let's pray. Father, would you help me today? Lord, would you be my strength and my wisdom? Father, you know that I can't do anything without your spirit at work in me. And so, Father, I ask that you would give me strength, wisdom, clarity. Help me, Lord, to be faithful to your word. And to silence anything that would cause me this morning to be sidetracked or to be taken off of my task of preaching your word so that your son would be glorified. Lord, would you help me? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There are 195 countries in the world. Out of the 195 countries in the world, more than 100 of the 195 have at least one McDonald's restaurant. That means that 51% of the world has the option of rolling up to a drive-thru and picking a Big Mac or a 10-piece McNugget from a menu. Meanwhile... Reports like the Joshua Project and the IMB and the WIN tell us that, over, that of the over 17,400 people groups in the world, only around 7,400 of those people groups have ever even so much as been reached with the gospel. This means that while 51% of people have access to an order of McDonald's fries, only 40% of the people have been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an 11% difference. And that is a massive difference. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like our priorities are mixed up and messed up. That sounds to me like we value food more than faith. Meals more than the Messiah. Lunch more than the Lord. And we need a wake-up call. We need a reality check to understand why it is that our world is the way that it is. 
And I would encourage you to focus your attention down to verse 12 because we see why the world is the way that it is. They went out and preached that men should repent. Well, repent of what? Repent of sin. Repent of waywardness. Repent of rejection of Christ. We need to be like the disciples going out and preaching to a lost and dead world that they need to repent. And if we're honest, we need to repent. Because we are the ones who are responsible for bringing the gospel to the world, and yet much of the world has not heard the gospel. In this morning's text, we see a reality check. We will see from the example of the disciples what we are to be about. We will see what they were about, and we want to be like those who walked with Jesus because their desire was to be like Jesus, and our desire should be to be like Jesus. That should be our hope this morning, that we would be like Jesus. Look with me at verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The first thing that I want us to see this morning is forsaking comfort. Forsaking comfort. Charles Spurgeon said, This shall be an infallible test to you concerning anyone's ministry. If it is man-praising and man-honoring, it is not of God. If every decision in life is hinged upon whether or not it makes us comfortable, we will often be found to to be going against the calling of God on our life. God has not called us to comfort, but He has called us to carry our cross. He has called us to be faithful to be obedient, to follow His leadership, and to submit to His Lordship. And since this is the case, we see that Jesus calls upon His disciples to do something difficult. In verse 7, He calls them, He summons them, He gives them a commission. Now what's interesting here is that this is the first time that the disciples are sent out on their own. Up until this point, since Mark chapter 3, when Jesus called the disciples to follow Him and chose those disciples to be His disciples, they were walking with Him all the way up until this point. They were sitting under His tutelage. They were sitting under His training. They were sitting under the rabbi, the Messiah, being taught how to do ministry and what ministry was about. They were taught the gospel. They had gone through a season of training. A season of learning. But no doubt, up, at, up until this point, because they had been walking so closely with Jesus, they would have found their comfort zone. They would have at this point been walking with Him for quite some time. And so it would have been very likely that they would have found their comfort zone. And for, so for Jesus here to summon them and then to begin to send them out would have been a difficult thing for them. But here, Jesus calls the twelve together and tells them that He has other plans for them than what they had for themselves. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we might have great and grand plans for ourselves, 
But the Lord is the one who has ultimately determined our path. He is the one who plans our steps. And so here, it's very likely that in the back of the minds of the disciples, they're thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We're comfortable here. Why are you sending us? But there was a purpose. There was a reason for this. Now note with me the divine wisdom of Christ, of the Lord Jesus, in sending out these disciples. Verse 7. And He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And He added, do not put on two tunics. Now there in verse 7, it says that He did not send them out alone, but He sent them out in pairs. I think that's significant for three reasons. Number one, we see this in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. The law prohibited anything from being accepted as truth except that it should be witnessed by more than two or three persons. We see this thought picked up again in Matthew 18. We often hear it said that where there are two or three gathered, we can have Wednesday night church service. But that's not the true context of talking about two or three being gathered. The true context of Matthew 18 is talking about two or three being gathered for the purpose of church discipline. For the purpose of formal church discipline, that there's someone who has been walking in waywardness and in sinfulness and they need to be called back into uh, being centered on Christ. That is a matter of church discipline in Matthew 18. And the importance of that is saying that where two or three are gathered, we can handle issues in the church. Where two or three are gathered, we can verify and, and, and confirm witnesses. So that's the first point here is that Jesus sends them out in pairs so that they would be able to confirm what the other was teaching. That they would be able to say, yes, they've taught correctly. And if we go down through the text at the, in verse 11, it says, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. A testimony is another word for a witness, a witness against them. In order for these 12 disciples who were being sent out to have any sort of witness against those who rejected Jesus Christ as Savior, they must have had more than just one party to witness it. Jesus is wise. The second reason that we see Jesus' wisdom in this is that there is a deep need for unity Amongst the body. There is no such thing as an isolated Christian who has nothing to do with the bride of Christ, with the body of Christ. It should be that if you hurt, I hurt. And if I hurt, you hurt. We rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12.15 There is a deep need for unity. If these twelve had been sent out as lone wolves, it would have been very likely that when they came to places such as those mentioned in verse 11, places that rejected them and wanted nothing to do with them, it would have been very difficult for them to keep going. Now, I don't know about you, but in my own life, when I often am tempted to spiritual depression and to have, have myself a, a pity party over under a juniper tree in the corner of some room, 
I can often trace back my sorrow and my spiritual depression to a disconnect from God's Word and a disconnect from prayer and a disconnect from God's people. In other words, when you are most spiritually depressed, when you are most, uh, when you are walking through the darkest days of life, that is when you need the church the most. And we often find that the reason that we're in those dark days is because we've pulled away from the church. This is why Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 tell us this. And let us continue how to stimulate one another or stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so other words, in other words, we need to be together. There needs to be a unity of the body. We need to stop forsaking the assembling together of the church. As you look around and see folks who used to be your pew neighbor and now they're not there, invite them back and tell them that they need to stop forsaking the assembling of the church. We need one another. Verse 24, it says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How can we encourage one another if we're never around each other? How can we build one another up if we always keep each other at arm's distance? How can we love each other if we're not even willing to get up out of our seat and say hello to someone, but instead we give glaring looks at people? That doesn't work. Let us encourage one another. Jesus is divinely wise. He is wise in all of His deity. He sees the beginning from the end because His seeing is His doing. And He sees the beginning from the end because He planned the beginning or the end from the beginning. And so Jesus sends these disciples out in pairs. And third is really just a matter of practicality. Jesus does something entirely practical in sending these disciples out in pairs. Billy Graham had what was referred to as the Billy Graham rule. But Billy Graham was not the originator of this rule. He was not the author of that wise plan. Jesus is the author of all that is good and this is a good and wise rule. The Billy Graham rule essentially said that you should never be alone, particularly for a man who is in ministry, that you should never be alone with a woman who is not your wife. To safeguard yourself, to protect yourself, to protect yourself not only from temptations, but to protect the person with whom you are spending time, to protect yourselves, both of you, both parties, from any outside gossip or suggestions of what is happening. But I would take that even a step further and say that here, Jesus sends these disciples out in pairs not only because it's not wise for them to be alone with someone of the other gender, but because it's just not wise for them to be alone. It's just not wise for us to try to go through life alone. We simply cannot overestimate the great spiritual benefit of good and godly friends who would rather wound us with the truth than kiss us with a lie. I would much rather be surrounded by those who are going to give me the truth that stings for a little bit than give me falsities of how great I'm doing in life. Because iron sharpens iron. 
And if you've ever seen that process of iron sharpening iron, it's not a delightful process. There are going to be times when we need to tell a brother or sister, you are in sin. And you need to come back from that. You need to walk away from that. You need to flee youthful lusts. 2 Timothy 2 verse 22. You need to flee those things. Those things are foolish. Don't go that way. And Jesus in all of His wisdom sends out His disciples in pairs so that they might do that. Look with me at the end of verse 7. He summoned them, He sent them, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 8, And He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And He added, Do not put on two tunics. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, we are instructed how to pray. Our Lord teaches us to pray for God's provision rather than trusting in our own way of making provisions for ourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. That is how we are to pray. We are to pray in dependence upon the Lord. And so at the very outset, that's what this means in verses 8 and 9 when Jesus instructs them not to go out carrying all of their possessions with them, but to go out just trusting that the Lord will provide. Trusting that the Lord is going to give them all that they need in order to be, to be able to do the ministry that He's given them to do. The disciples were instructed not to live a luxurious life. They were not to travel heavy. They were to travel light. They were going out not for the purpose of building a self-centered empire, but for the purpose of building the kingdom of God. And this is why false teachers of our day are so dangerous. They build empires for themselves and forsake the building of the kingdom. They may have mansions, but they certainly don't have the gospel in their preaching. Because preaching the gospel does not make for a popular preacher. Making disciples is the goal of ministry. Not making millions. Glorifying God is the goal of ministry. Not having all of our deep desires. And from the very outset, at the very least, that's what Jesus intends to instruct them, verse 8, to teach them is that they are to trust in the Lord. That they are to trust that the God who sent them is the God who goes with them. Think about the Great Commission of Matthew 28. At the very end of that, it says, And lo, I am with you always. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus does not send us out as lone wolves on a mission for the kingdom, but that He goes with us always? They were to take no bread, verse 8. They were to take no bag with them. That is, no beggar's bag in the original language. They were not to go about asking for handouts everywhere they went. Their goal was not to give, or not to receive, but to give. Giving people the gospel. The life-changing gospel that leads to everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ would be worth much more than receiving pocket change that could only last for a moment. What a waste it would be to line our pockets if we stripped ourselves of the gospel. What a tragedy to gain and never give. 
What a low thing to go about crusading for money when God has commissioned us for the gospel. At the very least, that's what Jesus is teaching them. But I think there's something else we need to see here. Verse 9. In verse 8, he instructed them on what not to do and what not to take. And then at the beginning of verse 9, he instructs them on what to do, what to take with them. But he instructed them to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. There were three ways of greeting people in this day. For those who were below another, such as a child or a servant, they would be greeted with a kiss on the forehead. For those who were equal to one another, such as a friend or a relative or a co-worker, they would be greeted with a kiss on the cheek. For those who were greater than another, such as a ruler or a teacher, they would be greeted with a kiss on the feet. The disciples were to keep their feet, their, their, their feet covered. They were to keep their shoes on as a symbol to the world that they were there to serve and not to be served. That they were not there as superiors. They were not there because they thought themselves better than those to whom they brought the gospel. But they were there to serve. But at the end of verse 9, it says, Do not put on two tunics. In other words, don't try to cover yourself up so much that you're completely shutting yourself off from everyone. A preacher's life, a Christian's life, should be an open book. There should not be private things that you keep private because they're sinful. Yes, there are, there, there are family matters and, and things of that nature. But there should be nothing hidden in your life because you're afraid that if it gets out, it's going to harm your witness. We should kill those things off rather than try to hide them. And that's exactly the idea here is don't try to hide yourself. Don't try to be something that you're not. Don't try to cover yourself up two times. That way no one can see you. Because people can see through it. People can see through the false witness. The second thing I want us to see is future callings. Future callings. I'm in verse 10 now. I hope you'll follow along with me. And he being Jesus said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony or witness against them. There are two things we should see from verse 10. That if we're not careful to study them, And to study the Scriptures deeply, we'll miss it. I don't just want you to hear this. I want you to see it. Look with me at verse 10. And He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. First, we should see what's plain in the text. Namely, that when we are in a place, we are to be faithful there. We are to remain there as long as the Lord leaves us there. We are to be faithful 
to our callings, our present callings. We are to remain steadfast to the task at hand. We are not to be unfaithful and constantly searching for greener pastures. Instead, we stay there while we are there. This is made evident in the simple command that they are to stay there until they leave. The command is twofold. It has two commands, one flowing from the other. First, stay put while the Lord has them there. So long as the commission stands for them to be there, they are to remain there. They are to stay put. Second, they are to build while they are there. They are to stay in one household, building relationships and strengthening unity. They are to put down roots there. But there is a second and an implicit point. If we were to do a little bit of text mapping or verb mapping, what we'll see is that there's this constant theme of transitory language. That is, of coming and going. Look with me at verse 7. And He summoned the twelve, that is, He called them to Him, and He began to send them out in pairs. Jesus summons or calls His disciples, then He sends them or commissions them out from Him, coming and going. In verse 10, And He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Jesus commands the disciples to enter a house to stay there while they are in town. Then He tells them that there will be a time when they leave. A time when they are released from their post to go on to the next post. There's coming and going. And again in verse 11, Any place that does not receive you, that is, take you in, or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Again, coming and going. Now what I want us to see in verse 10 is that these two words, enter and leave. And He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. These two words are what's referred to as suppletive verbs. In English, we have something known as verb conjugation. This is the changing of the verb itself that changes with it the verb tense. For example, let's take the word go. We might say, let us go to the ball game, future tense. We are going to the ball game, present tense, or we have gone to the ball game, past tense. They're all different variations or conjugations of the word go. Related to verb conjugation are suppletive verbs. They're like cousins, like first cousins to the root word. Keeping with the go, going, have gone conjugation, we might also say we went to the game. The verb is different, but it also changes the verb tense to past tense. It gives a transitory tone to the command. In other words, the placement is not permanent. There is a faithfulness expected while the disciples are in one place, but they're not forever bound there. Because if the Lord releases them from there, they're not only, they don't only have the right to leave, but they have the requirement to leave. Here, the suppletive verb is leave. The Greek term for this is to go out. To come in and then go out. 
some statements, like if we go back to Mark chapter 5, verse 34, we see a perfect present tense. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That is to say that the peace that the woman had had no expiration date. That until she went on to glory, she would have peace and healing in Christ. But not so with this command in Mark 6 verse 10. This is issued in the imperfect present tense, which communicates that there's a regularity of coming and going, of going and coming. These are transitory words. All throughout this passage, there is a tone of future callings. And really, this is a pervasive theme running throughout the totality of Mark's gospel. Indeed, even of all four of the Gospels, because we see that the ministry of Jesus is to go to one place to the other. The ministry of Paul is to go to one place to the other, so that wherever they go, they would bring the Gospel with them. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Romans chapter 1. And look with me at verse 15. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul was eager to go to the next place. And Jesus tells the disciples here, while you are in a place, be faithful. But understand that there may be future callings. This coming and going, being faithful and then moving on is a theme that permeates all of Christ's ministry and subsequently the ministry of the disciples. They are sent out to be faithful at their post while the Lord has them there and then they are given a sense of release in their next assignment. Jonathan Edwards said of the will of God that God's purpose for my life is that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. Let me put it like this. If your will is not that God's will would be done in your life, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If that is not your will, if that is not your prayer, no matter how difficult, uncomfortable, or daunting the will of God may seem, then your will is not in line with God's. We are either bound to Christ or bound to Satan. And a will that cares not for the glory of God, whatever that means for us, is a will bound to Satan. Bound to sin. Bound to dense and loose living that only sees what the eyes can see. The third thing I want us to see is facing challenges in verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony or a witness against them. So in verse 10, we see that we should be faithful where we are. What then do we do when being faithful is difficult? More specifically, what do we do when being faithful is made difficult by those around us? Like in verse 11 by those who don't receive us, by those who want nothing to do with us, by those who scoff and mock 
What do we do when being faithful to the Lord is difficult? What should be our response when we feel like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or when we feel like Paul in Athens, angered because the waywardness of the world and the city, or when ministry leads us to prison like Paul in Rome, or when being faithful means trouble and death like John, or when like David, we feel the weight of sorrow and the burden of holy living and the guilt of past sin causing us to constantly feel unfit and unworthy to do anything for the kingdom of God. What do we do when ministry is hard? What do we do when being faithful is difficult? What do we do when those whom we are, to whom we are called to minister kick back against us? When they sit there like bumps on a log unwilling to move with an attitude of move me if you can. What do we do when people check their watches and offer huffs and puffs rather than amens and praise God? When they ostracize us and keep us at arm's length, when they are altogether angry with us for telling them about their need for, for salvation from sin. When we try to greet them and they're barely even willing to mutter a hello. What do we do when ministry is difficult? When being faithful is hard? And I don't know about you, but being faithful is sometimes hard. Walking in newness of life is sometimes hard. People at work scoff. People in the church scoff. People in the neighborhood scoff. It's hard. So what do we do when being faithful is hard? I want us to keep something in the back of our minds from verse 10. The disciples are called to be faithful. They're called to preach the gospel. They're called to deliver the message with authority. Going back up to verse 7, He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That is, He gave them authority to preach against sin and to preach that sinners must repent. Go down with me to verse 12. They went out and preached that men should repent. They preached the Gospel. They didn't just preach that God loves us and has a great plan for us because if that's all they preached, then everybody says, yeah, I love me too and I have a great plan for me too. But they preached that there is a, a perfect and holy God who is righteously and justly angry with sin and sinners. Because of their cosmic treason against this holy God. And they must repent lest they die in their sins. They preached the gospel. They preached that people must repent. And that is hard to do. It's hard to tell your loved ones. It's hard to tell your friends. It's hard to tell your co-workers. It's hard to tell the person who's been sitting in the pew next to you for years. Who is backslidden and is walking in. Is not walking in that newness of life that they should. It's hard to tell people that they need to repent. But it's necessary. If you love someone, that is the truest way to love them is to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the impending danger of not repenting. They're to be faithful. Very simply, they were called to be faithful. Again in verse 10, wherever you enter a house, stay there. Be faithful. Don't run and tuck your head the first time the going gets tough. But... Verse 11, there are times to leave. There are times when silence says something. When the person to whom you have been witnessing, the person with whom you have been sharing the gospel, needs silence from you. There are times when after you have preached the gospel and preached the gospel and preached the gospel, 
when all of a sudden you're silent, they wonder what's going on. They wonder what has happened. They wonder if you've given up on them like everybody else has. And maybe they'll come back and start asking questions. Sometimes silence says something. Such as the case in verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They are actually permitted to shake the dust off and move on as a testimony or again a witness against them. This word is a legal term. This word testimony is the word marturion in the Greek. It refers to evidence or proof to be presented against someone's case in a court of law. Bullet casings might be presented as marturion or bank statements or an eyewitness or DNA at the crime scene might be presented as marturion as a testimony, a witness against someone's case. One commentator says that the Jewish leaders would literally shake the dust off the soles of their shoes when leaving a sinful city. And they would even go so far at times to shake the dust off of their robe or their tunic so that they wouldn't, be, uh, they, they wouldn't have the, the dust of heathen cities to tarnish their supposed purity and righteousness. For the disciples to be told that they could shake the dust off their feet would be to say that they could give a testimony against the hard-heartedness of the people who rejected the gospel message. If you keep rejecting me, if you keep breaking your neck to turn away from me, eventually I'm going to stop. Eventually I'm going to go silent. Eventually all of that preaching, all of that teaching, all of that witnessing will act as a testimony against the person to whom you have given the gospel. Think back with me to Exodus 9, verse 9. We see then that God used dirt or dust as a witness against the people of Egypt. A witness against Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. Here, God in Christ uses the very same thing as a witness against the people of the surrounding cities of Galilee. J.C. Ryle said this of people who reject the truth of the Gospel and the Scriptures. Be very sure of this. People never reject the Bible because they cannot understand it. They understand it only too well. They understand that it condemns their own behavior. They understand that it witnesses against their own sins and summons them to judgment. If we go and simply give someone the gospel of repent and believe and they reject, it's not because we haven't been clear enough. It's not because the gospel is too complex. It's that they hate the gospel. It's that they are enemies of Christ. It's that they hate the idea that there is a holy God who judges unholy persons. Finally and very quickly, I want to consider together faithfulness continued. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. They being the disciples went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Note what the apostles do when they face these challenges. They continue in their faithfulness. I love that this passage shows that they continued to be faithful. They continued in the ministry. When they came across people like those mentioned in verse 11, they weren't 
driven to depression and despair to say, well, I'm just going to throw in the towel in ministry. Somebody rejected the message. Some people don't like me. Some people don't like my style of preaching or my style of teaching. And so they won't even say hello to me. Some people don't like to even give me greeting or receive me. Some people don't want to listen to me. Some people would just rather run me out of town than even say hello to me. Yet they continued. They said, I'm not going to throw in the towel. I'm going to continue to be faithful. Dr. John MacArthur said it like this. All Christians are God's stewards. Everything we have is on loan from the Lord, entrusted to us for a while to use in serving Him. My voice is a gift from God. My breath is an act of His mercy. My mind was given to me from the Lord. My heart beats at His command. Every millisecond of my life is on loan from the Lord. It is given to me from God. So beloved, listen to me. Do not waste the time. Do not squander the days you have. Do not mock God and say, God, I know you've given me a new day of life. I'm going to use it to chase my selfish pleasures. I'm going to use it and spend it on myself. Use it to give people the gospel. Oh, that we would be faithful to the end. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil That is your trouble, your seasons of difficulty, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Help us, Lord, to trust in your guidance, in your will, in your word, and in your Son. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.